0: This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Long car rides before seatbelts were mandatory were part of my childhood. We lived in the southern states for three years when I was young, and every summer we drove back to Canada, five days on the road. The rhythm was always the same. My mom would wake up my sisters and me at the crack of dawn when it was dark and quiet. Then she'd put bathing suits on us, give us a cup of carnation chocolate instant breakfast and pile us into our baby blue station wagon. My dad would drive into the afternoon, then pull into a motel. My sisters and I would head straight to the pool, bathing suits already on, my mother was a genius, and swim until supper. The next morning, the routine began again. During those long days in the car, we would play contest. My dad would buy a pile of chocolate bars, then call out stuff like, for five points, Lindsay, what is the capital of Florida? I'd shout out Tallahassee from where I sat, wedged between the suitcases, then it would be the next sister's turn. Whoever reached 25 points first got to choose the best chocolate bar. By the time I reached 25, we were down to cherry blossoms and eatmores. Regardless of what I chose, I'd stuff that chocolate bar into my mouth in a way only a kid with siblings can do, and by the time we reached New Brunswick, I was fully carsick. With me, there was no smelling the chocolate, no melting on the tongue, no flavor reflection, no savoring. I wanted chocolate, and I wanted it in bulk. In fact, one of my earliest memories of me was crafting three wishes in case I met a genie in a bottle. My first wish was to have a speed bike with curly handlebars. Number two, to be the older sister, not the second in the family. And number three, to have a 100 chocolate bars. I know now we weren't eating happy chocolate. In fact, it wasn't even chocolate, it was candy. And who savors candy anyway? Needless to say, under a bridge just past Florence, New Brunswick, is a little body of water we've always called Lindsay Barf Brook. On today's episode of The Food Podcast, I'll dive into the world of bean-to-bar chocolate with the founder and CEO of The Chocolate Garage, Sunita de Torre. we We'll talk ethically sourced craft chocolates or happy chocolate, as Sunita calls it. We'll learn where happy chocolate comes from, how it's made, and how to identify quality by savoring both taste and story. I first met Sunita when I lived in Montreal in my early 20s. Sunita, a part Swiss, part Indian, first generation Montrealer studying molecular biology, lived across the hall from me. We shared many meals that year, but I remember one breakfast date in particular. She made a pot of oatmeal, spooned it into a low, shallow bowl, and swirled maple syrup over the top. As she slowly savored each bite, she explained the importance of a shallow bowl as it allows for the greatest amount of surface area, guaranteeing each bite of oatmeal to be covered with a touch of maple syrup. I remember thinking, this woman is brilliant. And now, all these years later, we're visiting again, this time over chocolate, not oatmeal, but it's all very similar. She's under the weather, her voice is slightly scratchier, but she's still a savorer. I ask her how she learned to
1: savour. What was the flavor of her childhood? I was going to say austere and sparse. (laughs) I think, you know, interestingly, there was one area of great richness in my life um, growing up in the suburbs outside of Montreal, and that was around flavor of food. I think that there was... The most joy that I saw and sort of gathering of friends um, and family was always around meals. It was always the focus. And so there would be these elaborate meals that inevitably my father would cook. um, Where my mother did daily cooking, my father did sort of celebration cooking. There was so much joy and happiness around gathering with people and enjoying a meal, whatever that meal might be, whatever kind of combinations of flavors, be it Swiss or Indian or a completely different combination of food altogether. Chocolate was always the, you know, given that my father was Swiss, we always had a good stash of good quality chocolate. I don't consider it very good quality anymore, but at the time it was definitely some of the best chocolate you could find, the Swiss brands. And every meal always ended, no matter what we ate, ended with an espresso, after dinner drinks, and then a little square of chocolate. So we would bring out a bar of lint or something like that and the way that the meal would be crowned would be um, after everyone was stuffed was to break open one of these bars into little pieces and hand out a piece to have with your espresso at the end of the meal and your cognac so those were some of my earliest chocolate memories were sort of the crown to the evening and to the whole um, feast that we would have and it was a special occasion every time. You know, it's not like we had chocolate every day, certainly not. It was really when there was a celebration of people coming together. Um, so I think that really lent to enjoying that um in that context. It was always very mindful and special to be able to enjoy the chocolate at the end of a, a meal.
0: Sunita has been in the chocolate business for twelve years, six years with the chocolate garage. The Chocolate Garage is in fact a garage full of chocolate where they host private tastings and have open retail hours for those who want to come in and taste. It's a place where people learn about craft chocolate, the makers and the farmers. They also head out into their community doing tastings with corporations like Google. She describes the space as, It's
1: an interesting contrast because we are literally in a tiny garage off of a little uh, side street in downtown Palo Alto. And yet what we've turned it into is this magical tasting room where people come in and sit on the comfy couch and taste chocolate and talk to their neighbors and community and get to know what is behind the chocolate bar. First by putting it in their mouths, but then by learning and sort of unraveling the magic of chocolate and all the different flavors that come out and textures that they didn't think were possible. Possible. So it becomes a place of really coming to your senses, um, being in the moment, escaping Palo Alto in this kind of magical little garage that's tucked away that you kind of have to hunt for. And, and you're greatly rewarded if you if you um, pursue the hunt and find the chocolate garage.
0: That year, way back in Montreal, Sunita was studying biology, playing lots of flag football and eating fabulous foods for me, across the hall, it was that sweet time between education, dreams, and odd jobs. Who knew that by sitting and eating with friends, listening to Sarah McLaughlin from our mile-end apartment next to the Bollywood Theater, surrounded by Greek restaurants and St. Viator bagels,
1: we were crafting our work future. I studied uh, molecular biology and human genetics, and I I had other interests as well and studied Spanish. Um, At the same time as sort of pursuing my scientific studies, which turns out to have paid off really well, even though it was not one of those easy A classes for somebody like me who had no Spanish background. But it turns out now I speak the chocolate languages. The overall thing I learned is that I was not the right person for science. I enjoy people far too much to be locked up in a lab 24-7, which is almost what it takes. And so from there, started to foray more towards human beings. And initially in the clinical sense, so doing medical research, both in Montreal and then in California when I moved out here. But the clear path was engaging with people, interacting with people. But what I want to know is, how did the chocolate leaf happen? Well, I'm not sure I really know, other than much like you, Lindsay, I think when you pursue what you love and continue sort of pushing towards it and trying to peel the layers back and see what you love, first it's a hobby, and then you make it take up more and more space. As I left UCSF, I started to pursue things that have always been my passion, things like fair trade and understanding our role as customers and consumers, I started to be more interested in using chocolate as a tool to make its long story from the cocoa pod all the way to the end chocolate that you're eating. Make that whole series of events that have to happen transparent to people.
0: I wanted in, so I ordered Sunita in a box. She sends a curated chocolate box, complete with a Vimeo link, where she walks the chocolate taster through the tasting process. It was a Charlie and the Chocolate Factory moment when the box arrived. Tucked within the gold wrapping were plain chocolates, playful chocolates, happy chocolates. Chocolates that are one, high quality and delicious, and number two, sourced in a way that has a positive effect on the supply chain. Basically just the best quality that treats everyone on the supply chain fairly. These are her words from the Vimeo link, because I was stuck staring at the beautiful packaging.
1: The starting point for noticing what a chocolate tastes like would be to smell it and to notice the aroma. And so I have a piece. Okay, just
0: to get everyone up to speed on the lingo, cacao is the raw form of chocolate, including the bean, while cocoa is cacao in its roasted state. Bean to bar refers to a chocolate maker who starts the process with beans and the finished product is a bar.
1: So putting it in your mouth next, and um, I'm noticing that my fingers, I just um, washed them with some sandalwood soap. So being aware that that's going to impact how you experience the chocolate. Um, The best time to taste chocolate would be first thing in the morning when your mouth is, this is how Chloe Dutroussel, the famous chocolate taster, tastes first thing in the morning when your mouth is clean, you haven't had any other foods to complicate your ability to taste. So letting it melt, noticing how the bar melts.
0: I invited my sisters and a friend over to taste with me. We took it very seriously. We followed along with Sunita and just press paused every so often to make comments like, How can a bar with just two ingredients taste like caramel? We had such a good time. And these bars were, without a doubt, the best chocolate we had ever had. And most of the bars at the Chocolate Garage are priced between $12 and $14, which isn't much when you consider their story.
1: Cocoa is so different from bananas that you chop off a tree, put in a box and ship. Cacao has to be picked, and when it's perfectly ripe, it needs to be cracked open within a day to be able to start processing the cocoa or else it will germinate and that will be the end of the potential for flavor for that chocolate bar. It needs to be fermented, which is a week-long process that's quite complex. It needs to be carefully dried or even cured. So these things have to happen right there on the farm This this value add that the cocoa farmer has to do and puts them in a position to be able to impact the price they get for their cocoa and dramatically increase the price they can get based on quality markers for cacao. So when, I wonder, and how did chocolate become so cheap? Our system really is about maximizing the ability to produce things efficiently without real regard necessarily for flavor and nutrition or how something is grown and what it tastes like. Cacao is particularly troubled because it typically is enjoyed and eaten in the industrialized world. It's a luxury product and it's grown in the poorest of countries. So the potential for unfair treatment and exploitation and abuse is so, it's so easy. It's even easier to squeeze the whole situation a little bit harder because of that sort of imbalance of power and who's eating the food and who's growing it. I want people to be able to enjoy chocolate for the taste and then also know that where it came from was was a healthy, happy place. And that is certainly not the case for most sort of candy that we have access to through the regular market.
0: I asked Sunita what unhappy chocolate is. It's hard to understand happiness
1: without knowing the flip side. To paint a typical picture in West Africa, cacao farmers are amongst the poorest farmers in the world. We're talking about living with $2 a day. Sometimes this is partly cacao, as well as some other crops that they're able to grow or sort of subsistence farming for themselves. These farmers are potentially adults, but we do also have more dramatic cases of kids who are working on farms, and they're not their parents' farms. Child labor and child slave labor are really different things. These are oftentimes children who've come from neighboring countries to Côte d'Ivoire typically, and they come to Côte d'Ivoire for better opportunities, to find a job, to be able to work on a cacao farm, send money back home. And oftentimes that's not the case. What happens is these kids get stuck on farms picking cacao and being fed and housed, and that's about it. Unable to leave and um, not sure where to go, given the situation they left was so difficult to start. I think that if we understood the prices that are being paid to the overall plantation owners or the cacao farmers for the, the chocolate that we're then eating and the kind of lives that they're living in, I think we would feel pretty good about paying a little bit more and potentially even having a higher quality product at the end where we're eating something that's better for us with fewer ingredients and higher quality chocolate bar, knowing also that cocoa farmers and folks who work on the cocoa farms are getting a little bit of a better um, situation, able to do well by their families and improve their situation. Do you think that knowledge
0: of a good social cause can, can upgrade the flavor, you know, when they're informed?
1: Does chocolate taste better? I think that marketing messages are very powerful. So I would say short answer, yes. But this is one of the reasons why I do what I do, because it's very easy to paint happy stories and put cute pictures on packages. And what you see right now happening in Big Candy is more and more of this understanding that we as customers, the market wants to know that they're not exploiting people. And so there's a lot of co-opting of words and images to make it seem like Big Candy is doing better and is not exploiting. But there's a lot of deception in that as well. So I think it's really important to be able to go beyond the packaging. It's why we often do blind tastings at the Chocolate Garage. I think it's really, really critical in the long term for cocoa farmers and for us as well, given these sort of scandals that there have been recently around storytelling that isn't so attached to reality. I think it's really important that we be able to have a connection between price and quality and that we don't get wrapped up in marketing messages that are sometimes true and sometimes deceptive. When
0: Sunita says storytelling that isn't attached to reality, she's politely referring to the Mass Brothers controversy that has erupted into mainstream media over the past few months. The Mass Brothers are, as their name suggests, two Brooklyn-based bearded brothers who have branded themselves as bean-to-bar chocolate makers since 2006. They're chocolate makers and marketing geniuses, The full controversy is chronicled in a four-part blog series by a blogger on the website DallasFood.org. But the gist is this. Some say these guys haven't always made bean-to-bar chocolate bars. Rather, they've melted down other chocolate makers' chocolate, added ingredients, and packaged it as their own. And packaged it they did, and beautifully. The last time I was in Brooklyn, I popped into Bird, the best of Brooklyn's clothing boutiques. Displayed in the airy, exposed brick, gallery-like store were their bars, wrapped in the happiest, most colourful papers I had ever seen. I considered buying a stack just so I could use the wrappers to wallpaper my bathroom. Sunita has been interviewed several times on the topic, so I asked her to
1: weigh in. Well... My focus with the Mass Brothers has always been tasting it does it meet our quality standards. That's first and foremost how we assess any bar that we bring in. And the Mass Brothers has always had inconsistent quality. Texture has not been great. Oftentimes, the melt is challenged. You feel the particles. And then the flavors, the way that they process the chocolate, they are not able to really bring out the best flavors in a bean. Our concern with the Mass Brothers has always been primarily based on the fact that the quality is not there. Over the years, the past decade really, through the industry contacts that I have and trusted colleagues, I've heard other stories about the Mass Brothers that were concerning to me and showed potential lack of integrity if those stories were true. Already the quality wasn't there, so the integrity story was not so important to me because I wasn't considering carrying this company. But it was very frustrating to see a company be able to really do well and sort of be one of the representatives of craft Chocolate when, for me, really the quality was not there and there was some questionable integrity as well. This recent four-part expose by a colleague of mine really showed that there was a plenty of evidence to point to at least initially starting their company off in a way that was not very truthful. So representing their chocolate as bean-to-bar craft chocolate, which means starting with a cocoa bean and ending with a chocolate bar. Rather, it seemed that early on they were remelting chocolate made by another company and putting it in their package. The best interpretation there is that they were being clever entrepreneurs, testing the market to see if there was a good market for craft chocolate, deciding there was, and then starting to make their own chocolate. Even with that generous interpretation, to me, that's a sign of not being truthful about your product. It's cheating. And unfortunately, I guess our system and our, our world seems to tolerate some amount of cheating as long as it's somehow clever enough or entrepreneurial enough or shows a way of building business that's very successful. That's a larger story beyond chocolate, but I think that it's sadly true. It's not clear
0: whether Mass Brothers were dishonest, but it is clear their chocolate doesn't meet the standards of the chocolate garage. However, they're great marketers. Mass Brothers have stores in LA, London and Brooklyn, and their bars are sold in shops like Bird where they are juxtaposed against clogs and clothes, where they're guaranteed to pop. And we judge books by their covers all the time, even when other, less sumptuous-looking books are much, much better.
1: We're absolutely seduced by packaging. I mean, and I'm not invulnerable to that as well. I know chocolate very, very well, and I can read a package by its cover practically at this point. And I know the makers so well that it's easy for me, but you put me in a wine store and I'm going to make a decision the way someone makes a chocolate bar purchase decision. I'm going to figure out the price range that somewhat makes sense for me, not too inexpensive, not too pricey. And then I'm going to go with my heart and find a package, you know, a label that speaks to me. Really, that's how we buy things if we don't know a category. So I think that connecting quality and not just getting enamored with a story that is easy to tell and isn't always so true is really, really important. And that's why we're relentless at the Chocolate Garage in doing blind tastings to assess chocolate, revisiting bars all the time, making sure that when we taste things blind, they're at the quality level that they ought to be given their price. And that then the price that was paid to the farmer is reflective of the quality of the cocoa bean And how do we identify quality?
0: Taste, trust the palate, and in order to trust, experience is necessary. I must taste more chocolate. So let's bring it back to learning. The boss was the winner from my tasting session. It's from Patrick Chocolate out of Missouri. The description is salt spiked milk chocolate with notes of caramel and crunchy cocoa nibs. I'm just gonna unwrap it here while we're together. There's a matte cardboard box with a fleur-de-lis in their label, Patrick Chocolate, limited edition, The Boss. This is reminding me, I once heard that iPhones are really difficult to open from their packaging in their box because Apple wants you just to savor the moment in which you (laughs) receive your phone. Same idea here, and it's smooth on one side, and then you flip it over and there's this surprise, all those little cocoa nibs.
1: Oh, I didn't even let it melt, Sunita. Oh, this is a bar that has to be chewed. That's the beauty of this bar. You don't, You can't really melt it because the nibs will sort of poke at your palate. So mm-hmm. it's one of those ones that without any guilt, you can just chew into and bring all those flavors together in the crunch. Where do these beans come from? That particular bar, the Boss, is a blend of a few different beans, and the nibs on the back are single origin from Ghana. Patrick Chocolate works with a lot of different cacao from Venezuela, Madagascar, Peru, Papua New Guinea, and then also from Ghana, he buys Fair trade cacao. It's sort of a base, chocolatey flavor that he never makes a single origin from because it doesn't have a lot of complexity. It has really base chocolate notes that he likes to include in blends. And on the back of that particular bar, those are the nibs um, from Ghana. I think the origin of that bar, or the reason why I love it so much, is because all of us have early, early memories with chocolate. Most of us started with really junky chocolate candy, you know, and it's fun, it's delicious. I mean, that candy bar has been carefully thought out and and put together so that it's really compelling. These sort of early memories are really powerful. So even as somebody now who has access to the best chocolate, I like a Toblerone bar. Even though, objectively, a Toblerone bar, it's pretty junky, but there's elements of chewiness and comforting sweet milk chocolate, and the shape of it too is probably compelling. The memory of that treat as a child, and I think that The Boss was created, it's actually created for The Chocolate Garage and only exists at The Chocolate Garage is made by Patrick for us. and. The story of its creation was a little different. I had a bar that was very, very popular at chocolate tastings and had a horrible list of ingredients. Early on, when I started, about six years ago, everyone would choose this bar as their favorite at the end of the tasting. And it was a bar that had all kinds of horrible ingredients and almost certainly had Cote d'Ivoire cacao in it. I couldn't get to the bottom of what cocoa they were using in that bar. So I asked Patrick to make me this bar that had the same elements as the other one. It was called um, Eclat de Caramel au beurre salé, so salted butter caramel explosions in a milk chocolate. It was sweet, had this crunchy kind of toffee caramel in it. I asked him to make a bar that had elements of toffee, and I actually wanted toffee in it. And he iterated and made lots of different bars, and toffee is a difficult thing because it gathers moisture and it doesn't last over time very well unless it's incorporated in the bar. So he played around with it and came up with this bar that itself, the blend of beans and a little bit of salt um, and the milk part of the milk chocolate, combined to give these caramel notes that are natural caramel, the blend of the beans. And then the crunch, he took cocoa nibs, which are little bits of cocoa beans, sprinkled them on the back to add a crunch. So what's wonderful about this bar is that it's a gateway bar in a sense because it's a beautiful milk chocolate, really comforting, really accessible. But then for someone who doesn't like dark chocolate, they're still starting to chew on those nibs, which are pure cocoa. And because they're wrapped in this sweet, salty milk, they're not overpowering. sort of get people to start to taste what pure cocoa tastes like and i think what i've realized over the years is that the boss basically reminds me of a tablerone that's really high quality but still has all those really playful elements of a tablerone bar that i grew up with you know what's amazing that bar paired with a particular brand called fortaleza um, of tequila an anejo tequila and the boss are like the cure-all for any problems i'm so glad that you're not working in a lab me too
0: I no longer wish for a speed bike with curly handlebars, or to be the oldest sister, or for a hundred candy bars. Instead, I want the best craft chocolate bars delivered to my house on a bi-weekly basis. I'll take them stripped of their package so I can sample them blind, slowly, capturing the story in every little bite. I can already taste the happiness. Please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and Stitcher. I would be so grateful. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at The Food Podcast or like us on The Food Podcast Facebook page. And please send along any feedback to thefoodpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, thanks to Jen Grant for our amazing theme song. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson.